All right, so here we are. It's been a little while, and uh, we are, of course, uh, doing this ad hoc infrequently because um, one of the major fulfillment houses, Vision Media, here in Los Angeles, is uh, is shut down for all but essential services, which means that all of our distributors, many studios who rely on them to uh, deliver product to us, are unable to do so. But we're still able to get some stuff. And we're going to continue to talk about uh, DVDs and Blu-rays. Tim, what have you been doing? I know you had to see some Film Week stuff this week. Well, yeah, I was on the show this week. And, uh, you know, as you know, as everybody who listens to know now, we're, we've been mostly talking about films streaming. We started off, of course, talking about the streaming films that were meant to be released theatrically. There are yeah. still a few of those. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we, we're quickly making ourselves around to the stuff that was probably always going to be streaming. Um, uh, and it, which is sort of interesting to me. I have been enjoying, though, uh, the, talking about streaming series. That's one of the supplementals that we do on Film Week now. Um, you know, stuff that you can watch uh, if you're streaming at home. Because, you know, you and I don't get a chance to talk about that stuff yeah. a whole lot, except for when we do the podcast, you know, and we talk about the DVDs and they come out. So it's kind of neat to talk about that stuff on the radio. Yeah, it's. It, we should talk about a little bit of news, too. I don't know if we talked about the passing of Alan Davyao. Who, no. uh, who, uh, the great cinematographer for E.T. and The Color Purple and uh, Empire of the Sun, so many great Spielberg films, as well as Barry Levinson's Avalon, and uh, a lot of other really amazing movies. Who, of course, has been in a uh, in the motion picture uh, retirement home out here for for about a decade or so since he he had some health problems uh, nearly ten years ago and he passed from COVID complications. Um, I had the enormous privilege of, of meeting him and, uh, and and working with him when I almost wrote the book on the Godfather restoration. He was the eyes and ears in the restoration booth for Gordon Willis, and it was quite a thing to see, to see him uh, the, talk to Gordon Willis on the speakerphone and then describe the frame, and they got into their cinematographer, nerdy speak, and it was it was quite a thing. So it's, it's a real tragedy to lose him. And then just a few days ago, we lost Irfan uh, Khan. Yeah. Um, the great Indian actor from uh, Life of Pi and uh, Slumdog Millionaire and Puzzle. If anyone has seen Puzzle, he's just yeah. wonderful yeah. in it. And so the many lunchbox, great box, of course. The Always lunchbox. Oh. <laughs> yeah. 1988. Uh, was that? I, I don't know if it, that was uh, a mere. That was her debut film, right? That was. It sure was. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He was meant to have a much bigger part in that film. She had to cut it down, uh, he, and he ended up playing a much smaller role. But that was that was the film that was meant to make him a movie star. Uh, in Bollywood, a Bollywood movie star. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it took another almost two decades for yeah. that to happen proper. And interestingly, it really happened proper with, with uh, her film, The Namesake. Yeah. Um, that's the one that, uh, you know, when he became an American, not an American, but uh, you know, yeah. an, a, international. American, international star. Yeah. That's really what made. Now, by the time you get to now, he's walking around India. He's, one of, he's like Madonna, he's a one name. Yeah, <laughs> he's true. A, that's how that's how big he was. Yeah, for a billion people. Uh, Amazing. If wonder if, uh, that's how big he. Oh man. man he's well. he's one of those actors, and my father loved these kinds of actors where he he's so subtle, he's so restrained, and he takes it all down so low, but he's so compelling that if you're sitting in a theater and he's talking, you find yourself leaning forward. You know what mm. I mean? It's like he just he draws you into the performance. It doesn't he doesn't come out at you. He's not hitting the back row like he's playing, you know, uh, a Broadway theater or something. He just he pulls you in. He makes you want to listen. He it's just it, he was just a, mir a miraculous actor, and it's it's terribly sad. He died of a very strange complication with uh, with an infection and and uh, something something related to to digestion. Wait. 
he was he was diagnosed with a fairly rare cancer uh, yeah. some 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 years ago and I I don't know if they're connected or did but you know there it is um, yeah. interestingly not not directly related to covid how do you feel how do you feel about the uh, so the academy has announced two rules changes this week uh one of them is that for this year only streaming films will be eligible for the academy awards you don't have to meet the theatrical play requirements I'm not quite sure how they are going to make rules allowances for the shorts and the documentaries, which have different rules. And because all the all the festivals that normally qualify the shorts are mm-hmm. are they're not there there are none. So yeah. I'm not sure how they're playing those others. But at least for feature films, for the main categories, you can qualify as a streamer this year alone. And the other is they're combining the two sound categories, sound editing and sound mixing, uh, into one. How do you feel about those? I have a problem with the second uh, situation, sound yeah. editing, the combining of sound editing and sound mixing. They're not the same thing. I've done both. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not I the know. same thing. And I know why all of those craftspeople are going to be a little upset about that, too. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the other thing, interesting, a couple of years ago, um, we were discussing um, uh, you know, Netflix and, and all of the streaming services putting their films in a theater yep. for a week or two in very specific places to make them Academy eligible. But, you know, while they were still running on platforms, films like Mud, of course, we had Roma and uh, yeah. the, the Irishman last year, all these. Um, uh, but those those films, you know, they would try to do this thing. I think is it Netflix that even bought a cinema? In New York or something like they, that? They they bought a few. They think they bought one in New York. They have bought into the Egyptian here. Yeah. You know. Uh, so, you know, all of these machinations in order to try, to try to create a situation so that they could put a film in theatrical release so that it would be eligible for an Academy Award. And now we have this moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I mean, the irony just kind of it runs a little deep. You know what I'm saying? You can't, yeah. help, you can't help it. Uh, now, um I, I, I'm okay with that situation. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, the films must have been intended to have a theatrical release anyway. This is not for films that were never intended to have a theatrical release this year. Am I wrong? I don't know if that is if 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 it's if it's if there's a requirement because see I'm not a lot of films are still being acquired, so I'm not sure how you corroborate that. You can confirm it for a lot, like we know what films were scheduled to be released by certain distributors, but. Um, there are going to be some other films where, that are going to be on the bubble who get acquired this year, and then how do you know? So I don't know. I, I hope there is additional vetting to make sure that, you know, like, uh, you know, Joe Schmo's direct-to-video mm, cockamamie nonsense movie doesn't wind up sending out screeners to us so that we hear the award season and, you know, we start getting inundated with all this garbage <laughs> and suddenly thinks that, that they're eligible and they even have a shot. I don't want that. Um, well, to, a, to a certain to a certain extent, extent, these things are going to be self-filtering, right? I mean, yeah. you know, uh, films that are in no way, shape, or form eligible for, uh, you know, um, um, not eligible, but but uh, Academy Award worthy, worthy, yeah. worthy, yeah. put it that way. Yeah. Um, you know, look, if you want to, hey, dude, <laughs> knock yeah. yourself out with that uh, if you want to. But I, I, I kind of feel like these things will be self-filtering. Yeah. Your crappy films are still going to be crappy films. True. Uh, I, I, I am deeply disappointed by the combination. We'll, we'll make this the end, then I'll, I'll launch into some anime. But I am deeply disappointed by the decision to combine the sound categories. Oh, I agree with you. Big, they big, are, big you know, and the thing that's so sad is this was, in the, this was uh, in the works end of last year. They were talking about it. It was the recommendation, believe it or not, of the sound branch. It was the branch that, that came up with this. Now, I can't imagine that the members of the branch would have been all that happy, but the reasoning being, well, nobody really knows the difference between these two categories, but we'll wait and see what happens at the next Oscars, because, you know, it's usually the same film that wins them both. Well, sure enough, 
this year they went to two different films. Yeah. Uh, went to Ford versus Ferrari in 1917. And, uh, and they, and, and they still went ahead and did it, even though the Academy quite clearly understands the difference. And I, mm. I'm wondering why they would, uh, you know, when they said, well, let's see what happens at this year's awards. Clearly it didn't, it didn't matter. They were going to go ahead and do it anyway. So I'm not quite sure why. Um, it really, uh, it's kind of problematic to me, but we'll, we'll see. For folks who don't know the difference, I'm, I'm, I'll explain it in the simplest, simplest possible way. It's more complicated than, than what I'm about to say, so there's no need to write in <laughs> or do anything like that. But in, in, in the simplest possible way, a, a sound editor, aside, aside from the fact that the word is right there, editing, right, yeah. um, also spends a good deal of time acquiring sound yeah. and then putting it together, right? It, sound, um, it used to be sound effects editing. That used to be the name of the category, yeah, yeah, and, uh, and that's basically what it is. Yeah, and it's a sound mixer spends very little time acquiring sound. Uh, the sound has already been edited yep. by the sound editor, and what they are doing is mixing in the levels to make everything, put everything in the place that it's supposed to be in the level up to make it sound actually mixed correctly. It's a, yeah. Again, it's a sloppy, sloppy explanation, but more or less that's what it is. Yeah, they're, they're two completely different talent sets, two, two different skill sets. And, um, you know, the people who do the one – um, occasionally will do the other, but they're the ones that will also say to you, yeah, these are not the same thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not even because close. they will, in fact, know that these aren't the same yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway. Well, uh, also of note, I want to make a mention, uh, as long as we're talking about streaming stuff, that uh, shout, you know, because Netflix doesn't need our help, really. Neither does Amazon. Neither does Disney Plus. Neither, neither does, does Hulu. But let me tell you something. Shout Factory TV is killing it. And uh, on June 1st, put this in your calendars, kids, because this may be the only uh, streaming platform you're going to want to have at that point. On June 1st, Shout Factory TV will make available on their streaming platform, which is available on everything else, Fire and Apple and, and, uh, and, and Roku, all of them. They will make available on June 1st, for the first time ever, all 11 complete seasons of the Carol Burnett show. <laughs> Fantastic. So you, you binge that. That is, that is hours and hours and hours and hours of Tim Conway doing wacky shtick and Harvey Corman losing it and not being able to keep a straight face. It is the most fun you will ever have. We grew up on this. Uh, Tim and I, you know, could could go on about this endlessly. But no, man, don't, even, don't even get me started. Not to mention the the, the wonderful uh, costume designs of Mr. Bob. Oh Mackey. gosh, so good. And and the late Lyle Wagner, of course, was oh, on there as well. Yeah. You know, so uh, so that is a that is a date to be celebrated. June first, all eleven seasons of the Carol Burnett Show. I, uh, I I think I'm just going to have to binge the daylights out of that. Uh, anyway, they also have shop branded channels on uh, Tubi and Amazon Prime and on Roku. So uh, you know you're, you'll be able to you'll be able to access this all kinds of different ways. But it, bottom line, Carol Burnett show coming to Shout TV on uh, on June 1st. So uh, I'm going to get started with a bunch of anime here. All right, brother. The uh, the anime companies, uh, uh, Section Twenty Three and Funimation in particular, have done a great job of keeping the pipelines filled. And uh, anime fans, this, this is this is designed for binging. Let me tell you, this is just bingerama right here. Uh, got some good stuff. Got uh, you know, let's see. Let me pull out some of the uh, the sente stuff first because we got a whole bunch of really really good sente stuff from Section Twenty Three. Um, 
we have got, uh, for people who are a bit prurient, the uh, To Love Rue uh, complete collection. This is a new English dubbed edition. If you, if you're really into your, you know, naked, nymphy, uh, young anime girls, uh, you'll love this one. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it's definitely not for the kids. Uh, so that's out there. Then there is also, um, Bang Dream, the second season. Bang Dream is basically more of the Japanese fetish about uh, school-age girls and girls in uniform, except it's very Josie and the Pussycats. It's, you know, the, 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 it's a girl band. It's all about a girl band, a little uh, high school uh, uh, teeny bopper girl band. It's uh, not prurient. There's no uh, nudity and, and uh, kind of hentai-type stuff going on. But it's, yeah, uh, it takes a little bit of the fun out of it. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, 13 episodes here in this second season. I, the music is actually quite cute, to be honest. It's yeah. it's it's je- definitely you know Japanese pop, which has its own uh, its own thing. And kind of in the same vein are the next two as well. Uh, Schoolgirls in uniform. Oh man, are you kidding me? Cinderella nine. Uh, except these are uh, this is all about you know schoolgirls playing baseball. So it goes into the sports direction, not the uh, not the uh, the the uh, the music direction, but. It's cute. the The animation is fine. It it doesn't break any ground. Uh, obviously, you know the the baseball thing is, is is cute. And then we also have Review Starlight, which might be the funniest one of all of them. I don't know if it's intended to be funny, but uh, this is uh, this is about a a group of girls who are part of a music academy and they're graduating, and they have to put on this. Um, Oh, uh, it, it's it, it it's like a it's like an annual. Um, they have to sort. Oh gosh, how do you even describe this? Because because it, it'll give it away. I don't want you to to to. They um, there's there's something about their academy that is uh, not what it seems, and the girls at this musical, this dramatic musical academy, are also not what they what they seem. And so they, in, when things get competitive, uh, then things get a little bit uh, supernatural and science fictiony. That's all I'll tell you. It, right. the, the, yeah, it's 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 very kind of superhero. It's very kind of uh, it's sort of musical. It takes all of those schoolgirl uh, motifs, all of those superhero motifs, all those things that show up in anime about kids who really want to save the world, and you know, kids be becoming uh, heroes because some ancient spirit called it or whatever. Anyway, it kind of blends all of that in one. It's really, really fun animation. It's surprising. It takes twists and turns you don't expect. It was more engaging to me than I ever would have imagined. Uh, we also have the complete collection of, uh, the, I guess the way to pronounce this is WZ, Ws. It's a W apostrophe Z. Um, uh, didn't watch a whole lot of this. Pretty kind of cryptic, hard to sort of wrap your head around. But it's about a uh, 14-year-old DJ, and um, he's, he finds a mystical artifact, and uh, somehow it, that launches him into this uh, very strange and presumably intriguing uh, hero mystery Joseph Campbell thing. We're going to talk about that a lot today. I'm... I'm not sure it makes sense. It kind of seems like it's making it up as it goes along, but the artwork is really, really quite compelling. 
from the great people at uh, Right Stuff, which is uh, rightstuffanime.com. You can find out more. After War Gundam X. This is more from the Gundam universe. This is uh, uh, a, a 15 years after one of the other Gundam wars. I lose track of the timeline with Gundam. There are all these wars that span centuries, and it's very hard to keep track of what era is, is each each of these shows is taking place in. But if you can kind of get over that, it's still it's more the same. It's you know it's very mecha, but it's uh, it's got uh, it's it, it, it's pretty good actually. It's pretty good. Um, it's kind of a self-contained story in this case, so it doesn't require you to know everything there is to know about the rest of the uh, the Gundam universe. Got a couple in the Aria line as well. Uh, we've got uh, our, uh, this is Aria. Uh, the well, let's see, because I don't know these. I don't know this world as well as some people do. But um, the the original Aria is here. That's the uh, Aria, the animation. Yeah. That's what. That's where this stuff started. Schoolgirls and you know, uh, sailors. Schoolgirl sailors. They're not wearing schoolgirl uniforms. They're wearing little cute little Gilligan's Island sailor outfits. And um, they 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 live on the planet of Aqua. That's the whole point. It's you know a, a like a water planet, and it's based on a very very famous manga, which I otherwise don't really understand and don't know anything about. But um, it's it's all sort of about the the uh, this water world and the, the the adventures that they enjoy being part of it. And you know, ultimately, it's because they want to look at cute little girls in sailor outfits. And then the other one here is part one of the um, a, a, a different Aria series, and this is also this is from Nozomi, also from uh, Aria thirteen, uh, from uh, uh, section thirteen, um, and this is uh, I believe Aria the Natural TV is what this is formally known as. This is thirteen episodes, kind of more of the same, but not quite as good as just the regular Aria the animation, the the original. So. There is that. And then lastly, uh, from Sente, we have uh, Ao-chan, Can't Study. And that's spelled A-O hyphen C-H-A-N, Ao-chan, Can't Study. And this is just uh, more high school girl hijinks, and it skews relatively young. It's got a weird sense of humor to it uh, because her, even though it skews young, her father writes erotic fiction. And uh, that makes it kind of, you go, okay, is it really skewing young or is it skewing, like, like you watch a lot of this and you think, well, this is for little kids. And then you get into dad and his, like, little porn writing and you go, maybe not so much. Kind of hard to figure out for whom this is created. It's not, doesn't feel like adults, but it's also definitely not kids. It just, it's very strange. Anyway, um, so it's about this, you know, very, very kind of lonely girl and... Um, how she navigates the ins and outs of this very weird life that she has with this unusual dad. Uh, Funimation has a ton of really, really cool stuff this week. Um, more baseball with Mix Maysai Story, part one, 12 episodes. It's basically a baseball ser- baseball show. Uh, it's, you know, a sequel to uh, the, uh, the 1985 manga Touch. And it's just about stepbrothers who are uh, terrific uh, baseball players and their ambitions. It's good. It's good. It's not amazing or anything, but it's good. Uh, After Lost, Where I End and You Begin, the complete series. Really, uh, the animation's good, but the writing is really, really good. This is a um, uh, a, a post-apocalyptic drama, 12 episodes, lots of really interesting extras on it. 
And uh, it is about a, a girl who is the last survivor of a city that has vanished. And um, it, is, it is very Joseph Campbell-like, but it's really, really interesting because it doesn't do what you expect it to do in that hero's journey thing. So it's called After Lost, Where I End and You Begin, the complete series it's on Blu-ray. Really worth checking out. Um, let's see here. Another One Piece. This is One Piece Stampede. If you want to, you know, get back into that whole, the world of One Piece, it just keeps oh, yeah. on going and keeps on going. This is the, uh, this has been released the 20th anniversary of the original One Piece film. And, uh, it's, you know, I mean, it's more of the same. Um, firemen are the central, uh, concern in Fire Force and that's uh, about a unit. This is DVD and Blu-ray uh, altogether. Uh, this was a big deal last year, and it is also kind of uh, post-apocalyptic. The problem is, and you think we have problems with COVID, the problem here is that people just burst into flames randomly. Yeah. Can, can you imagine? That, uh, that, that, that always burns. Yeah, oh, there we go. Thank you, Tim Cox Show. Anyway. So this is about a fire, a, a force of firemen whose job is to not put out the inferno of a house, but to put out people when they just spontaneously burst into flames. And uh, it, it takes a really, really weird turn in the middle. I'm not sure I like the turn that it takes. It's a little disturbing, but it certainly is unexpected. I will give them that. Um, Attack on Titan, Season 3, Part 2, continues this amazing epic battle. Uh, this is a great, great digipack set. has a really bunch of cool stuff in it, including a booklet, an 80-page art booklet with interviews with the people who made this. Um, Attack on Titan is supposed to be turned into a, a, an epic live-action series as well. I think Warner Brothers has been planning to do that. Um, who knows when that's going to show up now. But anyway, tons of special features on this. Really one of the best sort of epic um, science fiction sagas on anime in, in the last decade or so. And this is, is, does not disappoint. The writing, everything else, uh, the artwork, really, really superb. Um, Wise Man's Grandchild, the complete series. More uh, sort of fantasy fiction. This is also a, uh, a box set. Has a booklet um, with a lot of uh, manga drawings in it and whatnot. The, uh, there is commentary and you know little cards and all kinds of things on it. I... I don't know that Wise Man's Grandchild is necessarily a great series. It's interesting, um, but I've, I've certainly seen better. Um, it basically deals with a, um, a young guy who is, he experiences sort of a rebirth of sorts in this world where there is magic and he's raised by a magician named Merlin by no coincidence. And uh, it winds up being that kind of Obi-Wan-Luke relationship at a certain point because he can't quite master the magic that he's supposed to master. It, you know, it, it's interesting, but it, it really is a little bit too derivative for my taste. Uh, also is uh, Black Clover. We've got a uh, season three of Black Clover in a box set that is really pretty empty. It's just designed to plug all the others into it. So this is your, your sleeve. This is what they do at Funimation. They give you now the last season in the sleeve, mm. and then you can stick your season two collection and all the rest in here as well. So, um, it, but it's Black Clover, well animated, but, you know, it's been around for a while. And then, um, this is interesting, Anemone, Eureka 7 High Evolution. I love how the Japanese uh, just pick such interesting color schemes for their women's hair sometimes. Uh, she's got pink hair. 
And uh, this is a part of this ongoing movie trilogy, the Eureka 7 movie trilogy, and uh, the story of Anemone. And uh, she also is a lot, a lot of sort of female hero's journey stories this week. Um, she is, uh, she's, her consciousness has been um, sent to another planet, if that even remotely makes sense. And um, that creates a, a narrative that's a little bit hard to follow sometimes. The animation doesn't necessarily make it easy. But once you sort of acclimate to what's going on, uh, it kind of, the whole hero's journey thing sort of then does become a little bit easier to acclimate to. But that part of it uh, makes it a little bit tricky, especially because the, an- the animation itself is, is kind of challenging at points. But nonetheless, there it is. That's our anime for the week. Uh, Tim, what are we going to bounce into next? Uh, I've been looking at some of these docs uh, over here, so I'll do a few of those if, you, if you're into yeah. it. Yeah. Um, uh, kind of neat, particularly this one, um, a, a, do- a 2018 documentary by a guy named Paul Duane called While You Live, Shine. Um, uh, very, very interesting subject here. So um, there's this thing called the Silicose Epitaph, and it is believed to be the oldest surviving complete musical composition on Earth. Whoa. Uh, uh, some people date it from the first or second century A.D. Uh, it's just oh. sort of marble sleeve or column and inscribed on it. It's all kinds of stuff, poetry and whatnot, but also musical composition. And it's, it's, it's believed to be exactly that, you know, the oldest surviving complete musical composition. Much of this documentary is about that. It's about, it's about uh, music, generally speaking, uh, particularly old music, where music comes from, how, how, how the musical notation came to be, and different keys and scales and things like that. But this extremely interesting thing is at the center of it. Uh, so if you're in any way, shape, or form interested in music, you're definitely going to want to see uh, this film, While You Live, Shine. Um, and then there's this neat, tell me, uh, uh, Scream Queen, my, yeah. my, 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 my Nightmare on Elm Street, correct? Is that, that's yeah, the film we're talking that's about? Yeah, that's it. Because I, I talked about that film um, on, on, on the radio. So Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is actually the film we're talking about. Nightmare on Elm Street comes out, big, gigantic hit. They make a sequel. Um, and my Nightmare on Elm Street 2, even at the time, was the gayest film yet ever, <laughs> ever, ever seen, ever. It was so gay. I remember sitting – and funny how some guys didn't get it. I was, remember sitting next to Bridget. Go see this movie. It was 1980 or whatever the hell it was that movie came out, uh, uh, um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Yeah. And my wife gives me a little nudge, and she says, this film is so gay. <laughs> and I'm like, it is? And then I, I continue watching the movie, and I'm like, oh, it is. <laughs> it is. And if you watch it now, so I keep I say this, and now everyone who goes and watches uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is going to see this incredibly gay film. The star of that film is a guy named Mark Patton, who is at the center of this documentary about all of that. Uh, Mark was this up-and-coming young actor in the closet. Uh, he had been on Broadway and, 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 and off-Broadway in a number of plays. He had been in TV commercials and a lot of television. He was an up-and-coming young guy. Got, gets cast in this movie. Um, and, and, he, and he simply plays the movie exactly as the movie was written, exactly as he was directed to play it. And by, by doing that, he basically outed himself. Oh, my gosh. Um, and because everyone was like, Mark, we didn't know you were gay. And he's like, well, I am, but I didn't, I don't know how you know. And he's like, well, we saw that movie Uh. (laughs) and you're so gay at that movie. And sure enough, if you go watch the movie, it's a very interesting sort of thing that's going on. Uh, listening to all of these people from, from, from 35 years ago, uh, talk, talk about that. It really almost 
it, well, it actually ended his career. Uh, at the time, being a sort of, uh, you know, because he was a bit of a sex symbol yeah. in the roles he had been playing, uh, and it kind of, kind of took, kind of took his career out. So this is a very sort of interesting look back at culture there, and and how we can be oblivious to things at times. Um, the the vinyl, uh, the vinyl revival, neat documentary that explores uh, the well, uh, the resurgence of vinyl. Uh, it looks at the last shop standing, uh, which is this record store that was about to go out of business for a very, very long time. And, 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 and somewhere along the way, uh, vinyl records start to become popular again. I guess, Crazy. what would it be? Would it be your millenniums? Or would it be your yeah. generations? It's, it, it's, you know, I mean, it feels like it started to happen about 20 years ago, actually. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. I, I remember when all the, I remember when all the, all the record stores turned into CD stores and then the, the actual vinyl section, it, it, the one got larger and larger and then the other got smaller and smaller. And there was a moment right after the, the, after 2000, when suddenly there there are like these thirty five dollar vinyl special sets being released, and it, it's basically DJs who kept it alive. You oh know? yeah, 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 yeah. The real the real Ben Digger uh, DJ yeah. guys, you know, sampling and all that. This is a good documentary. You got uh, you got you got Philip Selway from Radiohead. Uh, you got Nick Mason from Pink Floyd. Uh, you got uh, 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 Ada Utley from Portishead. All kinds of great guys. Uh, um, uh, Joel Gideon from Brian Town Massacre in there. All talking about. Uh, you know, the era that was when it went away and how and why and, and what it means to sort of coming back. I really, really like that. Um, um, uh, this Alex Gibney documentary, Citizen K, about Mikhail Gordorowski. Oh, this is great. I love this doc. You know, hey, look, this guy, this is just an interesting, interesting uh, story. Um, uh, and, and, and I suppose different people have different points of views about this. I've been following this stuff for a very long time. Uh, you, you and I, have, you know, uh, uh, I, I covered this on Film Week. I mean, you know, one of the I mean, he's living in exile. He's one of yeah. the oligarchs who who you know went toe to toe with Putin, and he's a dissident now. But he he's such an, a fascinating guy. Um, you know, he he's you you don't know whether or not he's a good guy or a bad guy. It seems, and, and, and the thing of it is, it, it almost doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, because to, to the extent that he's a good guy or a bad guy, look, he he came about he came he came by those billions the way he came by those billions. So yeah. if, if you're looking at that, you know that's what you're looking and, at. And he's but really for that he, oligarchy. He can see that oligarchy. He can see it. Oh, and he's he's up front in the movie too about you know I, he, like, he loves money and he will do anything to make money, like money, 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 money. He is that guy. He is unapologetic about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he but he goes up against Putin. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting sort of dynamic that's going on in that film. And of course we know what happened to some of the other, um, uh, folks that, uh, went up against Putin. Uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, things that involve cobalt 19. Yeah. Um, uh, cold blue. This is a really neat, uh, uh documentary by Eric Nilsson. That's a tribute, uh, both to the eighth air force who flew all sorts of missions and during world war two bombing missions. <clears throat> um, um, uh, and, um, uh, William Wyler. Who who made movies during that time and about that time at yeah. that time? So this is doing both of those things uh, at the same time, and it really is a fascinating film. Lots and lots of archival footage. Is there anything special on that on that? Uh, well, on that there is. There is the original uh, Memphis Belle story of a flying fortress from 1944, restored in 4K, but on here on Blu-ray, so it's only a high def transfer. But they are, they restored it in 4K. And that's the original film that inspired the feature film Memphis Bell that yeah. uh, had Harry Connick and all those guys in it, you know. So, uh, so that's here, and that's a very one of the most famous of the uh, World War II films made by major filmmakers. And uh, they get an audio commentary with uh, 
Catherine Weiler and uh, Eric Nelson who directed it. So uh, yeah. it's pretty cool. Yeah, cool. yeah, cool. 1990, dude. That that, yeah. that, 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 that that Michael Caden Jones film that was 1990. Yeah. Isn't that uh, crazy? Oh, it's just so gosh. crazy. I mean, no, I went to the junket for that film. Um, <laughs> uh, tell me if I'm saying this right. Uh, Cinecite, Cine the the accidental spy. Say it for me. Uh, Chichinet. Chichinet. Yeah. Accidental spy. Chichinet. So Martha Cohn is her name. She's 98 years old when the film was made. Anyway, she was 98 years old. A French Jewish woman who was a simply splendid spy in Nazi <laughs> Never spoke about it even for decades after the war until just about now when she, in, in, in this film. And it's just a deeply fascinating story. It's always amazing to me how much footage there is to build these stories out of. There is footage of her, photographs of her. From, this is a woman who's 98. Yeah. Yet there is there are photographs of her from when she was a child. Uh, and and you could and and you know the, the way families maintain some of these things right, is really fascinating and fantastic. And you and this narrative is just will just blow your mind, dude. Th I am sure of this. The bravest people who fought World War II were almost all little bitty women. Yeah. I like physically small yeah. women. I, the, the stories that you can tell of these absolutely minuscule women without guns, without airplanes, without bombs, yeah. you didn't get any of that crap, yeah. uh, who did things that would chill <laughs> the blood, little tiny women, the bravest, bravest, bravest soldiers of World War II, I'm convinced of it. I love it. I love fantastic, it. Fantastic, fantastic movie that. Uh, say, 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 say the name for me one more time. Chichinette. Chichinette. Yeah. Chichinette. Chichinette. The accidental spot. Uh, the woman who loves giraffes, <laughs> which is about exactly that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the woman, yeah, so her name is Ann Dagg, and in 1956, she became one of the first people ever to deeply and very specifically observe and report on any animal behavior, but specifically giraffe behavior, which, believe it or not, until 1956, not a lot of people have been thinking about. Didn't know how giraffes made it. Didn't know all kinds of things that we did not know not about weird. giraffes. It's just, you know, I don't know. Maybe nobody thought about it. <laughs> you know, Jane Goodall went out there to do the chimpanzees. You know, yeah. and we thought we knew all kinds of things about chimpanzees. And then Jane Goodall came back and said, nah, this is what's going on yeah. with the monkeys. Yeah. Um, and uh, so this same thing with the giraffe. And I got to tell you. If you were to ask me just about anything about a giraffe, I'm pretty sure my answer would be I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know anything about giraffes. In my mind, I always thought they were associated with horses, not yeah. remotely. In any way, shape, or form, they had four legs. I just thought, you know, anyway, uh, fascinating, fascinating film. Um, uh, this last one here on my list. Oh, wait, uh, how, do you, how do you say the name of this one? Heimat. Heimat is a space and time. This is a terrific movie. Yeah, uh, uh, a documentary uh, by Thomas uh, Heise or Heise. Heise, Heise, I think is how you pronounce it. But yeah, German, a German last name, and it really should be watched with the, the Chinachite film. They should go yeah. together. Should watch them together. He's studying. He's looking at four generations of his own family, deep, deep, deep back into the nineteenth century. And, and while he's doing that, and explain what happens to his family and how his family um, evolves over the course of this time. What he's really looking at is Germany in the last century. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Germany in the last century, two world wars, um, everything that happened post the, 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 the division of the, the, re, the, the, the reuniting of the country, all of that 
is what you get to see when you watch this film, uh, even as he's mostly talking about his own family. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's one uh, of those. It's one of the, you know, it reminded me in some ways of um, Derek Jarman's Blue, nah. which is, you know, mm. Derek Jarman made Blue when he was dying of AIDS. And it's just a blue screen and him talking about, you know, ranting and raving and just his, but but there's something similarly personal here. Um, and it's it's personal essay film, but it's beautifully yeah. done. It's really beautifully done. And you learn so much about a period and the place, along with the sort of interesting details of of, of his family's uh, life. And yeah. this is an Icarus DVD. It includes a Q and A from the New York Film Festival with Thomas Heise, which is very very interesting, and a booklet, which makes it uh, superb for educational uses. So if you're an educator, you, this is something you really really want to uh, might want to think about. It's really good. Heimat is a space in time. It's a superb film. Uh, let's uh, let's take a dive into some of the new movies this week. We have two 4Ks. It's been hard to get some of the studio 4K stuff because it's all bottled up over there at Vision Media. Hopefully, in the next couple of weeks, uh, we'll get some loosening of restrictions in California, and Vision can can start mailing that stuff out again. Yeah. But um, we <coughs> we've got look at there, COVID just got me again. <laughs> and by the way, by the way, as long as we're on the on the subject, I got. Uh, uh, and I, and I, I think I emailed you on this. I, I just literally like about a 45 minutes ago or an hour ago, I got stuck for the antibody test. So we'll find out if all of my hacking during those shows in January was in fact COVID related or not. I, it, I, look, I, I haven't gotten the antibody test. I, I don't have to. I know. I know. I know I had it. Yeah. Oh, really? I, I, I know I did. Um, uh, and and uh, and I will eventually because you know they they want you to do it because maybe your plasma might be yeah. useful or whatever. Uh, but I know I did. I absolutely know it. Well, well, we'll uh, you know if if we both did, we'll go out and we'll give plasma together. Um, so we've got the gentleman on 4K, the uh, Guy Ritchie film, which has a freaking loaded cast, man: Matthew McConaughey, Charlie Hunnam, uh, Henry Golding, Michelle Dockery, and then uh, to hold it down for the old guys, Colin Farrell and Hugh Grant show up uh, in very very funny parts. I don't know quite how I feel about this on balance, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this is a, a a Miramax branded film, by the way. This is one of the first films to have the Miramax name on it in a long time. I think that's very strange. Mm. But uh, otherwise, Uni- uh, Universal has put it out on um, uh, on disc, and STX Films released it in theaters. It is on 4K. Uh, I kind of feel like I'm over Guy Ritchie's doing this shtick, to be honest. Yeah, dude. I, 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 look, I, I I will say it straight up. He's been making this movie for like 20 years now. Yeah. Uh, and it was really wicked cool the first two times. Yeah. Uh, and then he went, wandered off, and he and he made those Sherlock Holmes movies. But he kind of made them in the same way. Yeah. You know, if you watch those movies, they're just Guy Ritchie movies set in 1895. Even Aladdin. Uh, even Aladdin is the same yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that, and now he's just actually literally doing it again. All right. You know what? I'm over it. I am too. I mean, I love. I I do love the cast. I think Henry Golding is very interesting being cast against type. I like Hugh Grant playing, you know, slime balls. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Colin Farrell's always good. Matthew McConaughey's kind of just being himself. But otherwise, and Michelle Dockery is nice to see her. You know, not in period uh, and out of Downton Abbey. But on, otherwise, I've seen this movie before. Yeah, when Guy Ritchie made it. Yeah, <laughs> several time times. Every time he makes it. Uh, the other 4K is uh, Ip Man 4, the finale. Now, if you've lost track, there are two, well, actually three different Ip Man franchises that have been done in Hong Kong. 
Um, and one of them is only a one-off. It's the Wong Kar Wai film, the the Grandmaster. Then there's another series of Ip Man films, which are both uh, older and younger Ip Man. And then there's the Donnie Yen series of Ip Man films. And yeah. this is the last one. They've lasted four films. Um, and uh, I got to say, I think this is kind of the weakest of them. Uh, you know, Ip Man in this particular one, it deals with him a lot. It's it's all state the set stateside. He's he's dying, and he uh, he's having a problem trouble. You know, raising his rebellious teenage son, and uh, there is, and he goes to San Francisco to um, uh, see Bruce Lee, his former student, who is you know hot stuff right now. But there's he runs into conflict there with the local uh, martial arts gurus that it's not even the right way to put it. All of the Sifus of the local um, schools who don't like what Bruce is doing because he's teaching Kung Fu to white people and black people and uh, non-Asian people. Mm. And at the same time, they are subject to a lot of anti-Asian racism at the time. This is all, you know, early 1960s, uh, right before Ip Man dies because he was a chain smoker his whole life. And um, it's pretty dumb for the most part. It doesn't do the story as well as previous Ip Man films have done. Donnie still plays the hell out. He does a great job. Um, still, he still look. He still looks twenty five. It's ridiculous how young Donnie Yen looks. It's crazy. Uh, uh, he's been at this for forty years, and he's just he's still killing it. But um, I will say this. First of all, there's a moment in there where there's this, like, really horrible, racist American Marine. Like, the American soldiers are the ones who are most racist of all. And this one Marine who's going to, he's going to show, he's going to use karate to, to really show them that kung fu is inferior in this racist white Marine. And you sit there and you watch this and you go, that white Marine looks Asian to me. I don't understand what's going on. And sure enough, the actor who plays him, who is a former Marine, by the way, who runs a dojo in Hong Kong, is half Japanese. He's half Japanese. They cast a half, half, half Japanese guy as a racist. I don't understand. And it's so obvious. It's not like it's not like you're looking at Keanu Reeves, right? And you go, I think he might be part Asian, maybe. No, it's like obvious. You're like, that's not a white guy. That's a, that's that's not a white guy. It's just it they might be a little white, but it's not a white guy. Anyway, uh, that's stupid. But there's a fight scene in here, an alleyway fight scene with Bruce Lee that is great. It all it makes the movie, and it's especially good in 4K. Um, the audio is also really really good too. So this is a Wellgo release. Wellgo's first release in 4K, we should point out. Wellgo has stepped up and they've released Ip Man 4 in, in 4K. I hope the other Ip Man films get released in 4K as well, because 2 certainly deserves it. But either way, kudos to Wellgo. I wish the film were better, but it's got some great stuff in it. And um, yeah, uh, Yun Wu Ping did the action directing, and of course it was directed by Wilson Yip, who's done all all four of these films oh, with yeah. Donnie Yen previously. So there it is, uh, Ip Man Ip Man 4, uh, the final chapter. So uh, let's go to some of the other new movies. Um, uh, Tim, did you see the rhythm section by chance? Um, in, 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 in fact, I did, and I thought that that film was pretty slick. Yeah. Uh, it moved, moved quite, quite, quite nicely. Um, tell me, is there anything particular? I don't, I don't have the actual physical DVD yeah. in front of me. So what are we talking about? Do we have the blue K, the blue, uh, the 4K or the Blu-ray? It's, or it's, what, what do we, what do we, it's what do blue, we have in hand? It is a Blu-ray because it's Paramount. You have to uh, basically, uh, you, it's not movies anywhere. I don't know why Paramount keeps resisting that, but uh, so you gotta have to do it on your Voodoo account or, or whatever the case is, uh, or, or iTunes. You know, you gotta pick one. 
hopefully at one point you don't you don't have to and they'll they'll just go with movies anywhere i don't know what the the cost issue is but anyway no yeah this it's, is Bla- it's a pretty neat movie blake lively it's a revenge movie yeah it's a revenge uh, movie she's she's doing she's doing the crash they killed her family she's gonna go get them and she in fact does yeah i mean she you know she's she had a horrible horrible uh loss of her family she's turned into like a prostitute and a heroin addict until jude law Who's a you know a renegade ex secret agent pulls her out and says you want to get revenge here I'll teach you how to be La Femme de Kita. and he basically does. Um, it's got a lot of rip roaring stuff in it. Blake Lively's really good. Uh, it was produced by Barbara Broccoli. I think they wanted this to be a franchise. I don't know if it's necessarily going to be, but you know it fits right in. It slots right in there, kind of with Salt and Atomic Blonde and La Femme yeah. de Kita and all the all the badass uh you know butt kicking revenge driven girl movies uh there it is so and i like jude law in this a lot uh, it's just jude you know he's kind of doing a little bit of the same thing that he was doing in captain marvel but he's jude law yeah. I, I like that he's playing second fiddle to these these butt kicking women lately it's kind of cool uh i saw that movie looking for alaska yeah i think i was i think i was on the show when i came out with charlie Plummer. And it's a perfectly sweet uh, uh, little movie. Uh, a student arrives at a boarding school and meets this girl and named Alaska, and, and they get to know each other, and they sort of hang out and fall in love. But it's just a sort of like sweet, sweet little movie. Uh, and then there's something going on in the background that which will give away the story, so I won't give that away. But it's just the sweetest little movie that you could ever want to see. What's on that? Did it come with anything? Any, any special? Features? Not terribly. There's deleted scenes and uh, a couple of featurettes. That's all. Um, the deleted scenes. I, I took a look at the deleted scenes. Didn't see anything there that really kind of uh, was all that interesting. The uh, of the featurettes. The the second one, which is called In Search of a Great Perhaps, Taking Alaska from Page to Screen, is a pretty straightforward uh, how we made the movie featurette. But it's it's good. It's good. Uh, you know, some interesting stuff in it. Every movie's different, and this one's uh, not bad. It's got a cute cast. I like this. Mm. Yeah. I saw that movie Like a Boss uh, for the show when it came out uh, You know, a, a couple of months ago, Miguel. Uh, Tiffany Haddish film with Rose Byrne. That's a very sort of weird casting there, Tiffany Haddish and Rose Byrne yeah. as, as lifelong friends go all the way back to junior high, uh, and they sort of they, they're sort of coming up, and they've they've had this company, and they're trying to make some some money, and then Salma Hayek comes in, this this shark who runs this gigantic corporation, she's going to buy their company, uh, but she wants to reshape their company uh, into in, in her own sort of image, and Tiffany doesn't want that to happen, but Rose is kind of you know what we need to pay the bills, yeah, uh, and then you have you have one of these sort of wacky comedies. It was you know by 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 Fits and hitches. It was occasionally funny. Yeah, uh, but you know, not like Billy Porter uh, was the thing. He, he was funny <laughs> all. He just he's just hysterical, Billy Porter. I don't I don't know where that guy came from. Uh, I don't either. It, but it, thank it, goodness for him. It's I, I I still feel though like I mean Rose Byrne. I feel like both the part of the thing here is that Rose Byrne and Tiffany Haddish both deserve a better movie than this. Yeah, yeah, And it might be one that they're both in. It might not be. But I feel like Rose Byrne has never quite found her groove in a movie. And I feel like nobody has quite yet written a comedy that steps up to what Tiffany Haddish can do. Yeah, She can can carry a movie, but I just don't know that anybody's written one for her. So we'll see. Uh, The Dark Red. Um, So The Dark Red is is, uh, basically one of those. It's like uh, it's in the Rosemary's Baby, uh, Evil Spawn, uh, Hereditary, right? It's in in that that, that genre. Um, And, uh, you know, I don't know if it really quite works. uh, She's been been kidnapped by the – she's been kidnapped basically by this weird cult. 
that um, it has to do with your your blood type, which I never quite understood. And uh, presumably, it it lets you. The, the, she possesses the power to basically control other people's thoughts. Anyway, um, and it all has to do with you know her child, and it 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 gets a little bit overly convoluted with all of the mythology. Is it scary? I guess so. Uh, <laughs> if you if you turn the lights out and watch it at like one in the morning, it's probably going to scare the daylights out of you. I don't know that it's necessarily better than something like Hereditary, which I don't particularly love, but it's it's Hereditary at least didn't require me to do mental gymnastics to sort of figure out um, oh, yeah. all the all the stuff involved in it. Um, Ride like a girl, Therese Palmer and Sam Neill, uh, interesting Australian film, true story of Michelle Payne. Did you get a chance to see this one, Tim? I did not see that one for the show. No, whatever. it's uh, it's really it's really a great story. Uh, it's the true story of Michelle Payne. Who, uh, from the time she was a little girl, she wanted to be a jockey, and it's all about you know the the, the realizing your life's goal, which was to win the Melbourne Cup, and um, it's not a straight shot, you know, it's a it's a rough story and uh, all the life hurdles you've got to go through. Sam Neill plays her dad uh, beautifully and wonderfully, and uh, it 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 you know I'm not giving anything away. The movie wouldn't exist if she didn't actually grow up to win the Melbourne Cup. That's mm-hmm. kind of what the story's all about. So, yes, she does succeed. But the story is, of course, uh, how and what she overcomes. And it's ultimately about the family relationships with her dad and her brother. And, and uh, it's very, very sweet. It's just really, really sweet. There's, I won't, I won't, there, there are certain things I'm not going to give away because it's, you, you, they, you don't expect them. But, boy, it really has, uh, it has so much heart. So it's really sweet. I'm just sorry it's not on Blu-ray. It's only on DVD from Paramount. Um, but it's still worth checking out, even if you just rent it. Ride Like a Girl also includes a uh, digital code. <coughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Where else are we going to go now? Um, where are we going? Well, uh, you know what? Let me let me uh, knock off a couple of TV things here. Uh, we okay. were not able to get physical product for these, but uh, because obviously the, the constraint, but we were able to get some... Um, uh, links to take a look at them. And the first one is um, hang on, Infinity Train, uh, book one, a Cartoon Network series that I was not familiar with. This is really interesting. Have you have you followed this? It started in 2016. Don't know that one. Infinity Train is an animated show. It's kind of like, it's about this fantasy train, which is like the the good version of Snowpiercer. You know, Snowpiercer is everything that's wrong about society crammed into this, like, class-divided train. This mm-hmm. is a train that has all of these... It's like a, a magic train. And uh, the cars of the train give you all of these really interesting sort of... Um, uh, they're all like uh, fantasy escapes, right? Different worlds on the train. And the passengers they pick up are people who need to resolve something. So it's a little bit like Fantasy Island on a train, if that makes sense, right? And so each each book is apparently a different story. And book one is very specifically uh, the story of Tulip, this girl who the vo- Ashley Jolson is the actress who who does the voice, um, who's this teenage girl who is really really just plagued by the fact that her parents are getting divorced, and uh, she uh, she through the 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 adventure on the train 
uh, is able to sort of come to grips with these things. And she's a really interesting character, and she doesn't necessarily want to stay on the train. That's what makes it really interesting. So Infinity Train, book one, I think is really, really good for kids. Uh, it, it, it touches on so many interesting subjects and everything else. The other one that we uh, we got sent, uh, and uh, I was able to pretty much look at all of this, was the season eight box set of Arrow. Um, doesn't look as oh, good yeah. streaming. Actually, followed all of that, man. So Arrow, its last season, last season of Arrow, only ten episodes. Not, yeah, right. Yeah. Of course, you have all this crossover stuff going on. With, yeah, with, uh, with Supergirl and Flash and the, the, right. you know, the Infinity. So, so that may- so I, I depends on whether or not you're going to count those. Yeah, it winds up being about fourteen episodes if you watch the crossover stuff because it's the it's the war on on uh it's the 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 the, the DC crisis on Infinite Earths narrative which they which is one of the big moments in the history of dc comics where they said we've got to retcon everything because we're not we're not hip like marvel and we haven't really created a cohesive world we've been contradicting ourselves for 30 40 years uh <laughs> we've got it we sort of have to you know we keep getting letters from fans saying why did batman do this in this one and then in the other one he says he did that none of this makes sense like fans were all over them so they just said hell with it we're just gonna retcon the whole damn thing and fix everything crisis on infinite earths and then they kind of adapted that. I mean, that was like, what, early 90s or something oh, like yeah. that that they did that? So uh, they sort of adapted that to all of these DC shows in the Arrowverse, and that's what is part of this season of Arrow. But I like the fact that independent of that, it's a tight season. It's not. It doesn't have all those detours we're always complaining about on Flash. You know, like, oh, here's the gorilla episode. Here's the shark episode. Here's, like, some damn thing that they wrote because they just needed filler for this week. It's it's really, it wraps it up in style, and I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it really does. Good stuff. Yeah, uh, and, and it even... It even sets up a possible spinoff, which I I think is really interesting. So um, that's really cool. So anyway, Arrow season eight uh, might well be the best season of the series, just because it is so so tight and so cool. Um, let's see. Uh, so we you know let's let's touch on some some older movies real quick. We've got a a, a ton of Kino here. Let me let me just uh, ramble. Let me see how long we got left on the show too. Um, Got a little bit. Let me let me let me blow through some of this Kino stuff. The Kino uh, Studio Classics uh, keeps giving us great stuff, more than you could probably watch in any given month. But man, there's a lot of great stuff here. Uh, so I'm just going to pull out some of the really really key ones from this month. Billy Liar with Tom Courtney and Julie Christie, uh, uh, fantastic movie from 1963. One of the great kind of angry young men movies from that uh, that kitchen sink realism moment in the early 60s. This is 1963. Uh, John Schlesinger just start, really starting to kind of come on strong. By the end of the decade, he'll have you know, directed the best picture. And um, this is this is an absolutely great movie. Um, oh, yeah. it's uh, a, uh, Julie Christie, uh, just, oh, my gosh. It's, uh, in that movie, just, too. Uh, 1963, Julie Christie, forget about it. I know. It's, it's, it, has, it just captures that moment, that kind of hip, uh, early '60s moment in in England, and uh, you know Tom Courtney is just absolutely terrific as uh, as this uh, this guy who's an assistant to an undertaker who is kind of a uh, he's sort of a a a Walter Mitty type figure, you know, like a grittier Walter Mitty, and that's why they call him Billy Liar because he makes up these stories. And Julie Christie is just gorgeous and hot, and she's got all the hip fashion, and she just she's the she's just it. She's she's the one that basically makes him come out of his shell, gets him to, you know, move out of his parents' house and 
it just it's a really really wonderful movie and it's got all the same kind of uh, vibe that made so many of these movies great like the knack and how to get it really a wonderful yeah. movie uh lives of a bengal lancer from uh, 1935 uh with gary cooper is is kind of forgotten now but it's a it's they've restored the, they've restored this beautifully uh with a new 4k master Directed by Henry Hathaway, uh, and uh, considering that the, you know that movies are really like talkies are pretty young at this time, yeah. this is already really sophisticated filmmaking by 1935. Uh, Hollywood figured it out very, very, very quickly, and this is a uh, this is you know set in, in India during the Raj and. Uh, the the story of the the the, uh, the the Khyber Pass and the men who guard it and all of the uh, the, the military and uh, melodramatic machinations that go on thereabouts. Um, it gets a little bit like you know it's a you, you can tell a lot of it is very very sound stagey, but still. Uh, well, yeah, the, po- the politics of it are a little difficult today. They are because <laughs> it's, cel- it's, it's celebrating imperial. It's celebrating British imperialism before Indian independence, uh, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but at the time, it, yeah, yeah. Say, yeah, and it's very, very well made. So that's worth checking out. That has an audio commentary on it that definitely contextualizes a lot of that. Um, Bo Jest. Ah, speaking of. Uh, also with Gary Cooper, Ray Milland, and Robert Preston from 1939, uh, a year that would have elevated this possibly to a Best Picture winner, if not for the fact that it was the same year as Gone with the Wind and, and yeah. Wizard of Oz and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and just about every other great damn thing. But uh, it looks a bunch of guys in the French Foreign Legion, and uh, it's got romance, and it's got action, and it's got humor, and uh, it's it's just fantastic. It's absolutely wonderful. I, I love this movie, and uh, I it's it you know it, it's it's just one of the one of the great great movies of uh, of that year. Bo Jess. Well, William, William Wellman. What do you think? I know William Wellman. So good. Um, let me just hit a couple more of these. Uh, the Sound Barrier is a must. This is uh, one of the most underrated of David Lean's films. It's kind of like David Lean's version of The Right Stuff Before The Right Stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, David Lean, when he was transitioning out of all of the Dickens stuff, Great Expectations and Oliver Twist and all of the uh, the Noel Coward stuff that he was doing at the time, he was basically doing just Noel Coward and then Dickens, and then he needed to transition to something better, which eventually was Summertime. When he shot Summertime in full color, only his second color film after Blood Spirit, which he shot yeah. in Venice with uh, with with uh, Catherine Hepburn, and then he migrated from that to all the other epics, you know, Kwai and Lawrence and everything else. Mm. But right in between there, he made the sound barrier. Yeah, Terrence Radigan. Terrence Radigan uh, wrote it and and conceived the story, and it's got Ralph Richardson, uh, David Lean's then wife, and Todd, uh, John Justin. It's a really really good, great British film. You see the director that he's going to be emerging from this. It is a really, really good film. It's got some great aviation stuff in it, and uh, it's just so smart. It won the 1953 Oscar for Best Sound Recording. Mm. Not sound editing. Not sound editing. Sound recording. <laughs> How apropos. I know, but uh, it's a terrific film. It's really good. I'll give one more here, and then uh, then we'll turn something over to you. Uh, if there's anything, I know we've got some foreign here that you. I think you you saw some of the foreign. Uh, a couple of these, yeah, a couple of foreign. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Let me pull one more out of here. Um, what to to come back to some of these maybe a little. Oh, you know what? Here's what, here's what we're gonna do because Richard Libertini is in this. Uh, don't drink the water. Don't Drink the Water with Jackie Gleason from 1969. My good dear friend, uh, the late Richard Libertini, is in this and incredibly funny in it. Um, If you haven't seen this, you've got to see it. From 1969, 
This was a Rollins Joffe production uh, because Woody Allen uh, wrote the original play, did not direct the movie. This is directed by Howard Morris, but you can tell it's Woody Allen's humor all the way through. It's just interesting somebody else directing his material. Um, uh, and he didn't write the screenplay either, but, uh, boy, is this absolutely, um, uh, absolutely a, a stone cold riot of a film. So Jackie Gleason, and I think they did a TV version of this, uh, about 15, 20 years ago, maybe two. Anyway, this is, this is all kind of cold war satire in which you have a, this guy from New Jersey played by Jackie Gleason, uh, with his family who just take a vacation to Europe. Just, uh, you know, an ordinary thing. And they and uh, they go to this country, this imaginary country called Bulgaria. And uh, next thing they know, the whole family is arrested for spying. And <laughs> they have to hole up in the American embassy. And the whole thing turns into an international incident. And it is so stone-cold crazy and so funny. And I don't know if anybody today who, who doesn't remember the Cold War would really fully appreciate the, the absurdity of it, but it's so good. It gets into mad, 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 mad world territory. It's really funny. Don't well, drink the water. It's kind of catch-22, uh, same, same sort of thing, catch-22. You know, Indeed. Uh, you, had Indeed. To, you had to sort of be there. You did. You did. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's uh, Jack Gleason and Estelle Parsons. They're just a great team. They're so funny. And uh, from 1969, it has an audio commentary by Howard S. Berger and Nathaniel Thompson that is really, really fun. So there is that. Let's. Uh, so what else? What else should we hit on here before we well, wrap this I, up? Well, I did see a Faithful Man. Um, oh yeah. Uh, if, if we're if we're uh, yeah. uh, talking about the 2018 film, that's the one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the Louis Garrel film, which is a really, really interesting <laughs> film. Fun film. Uh, slightly, slightly, slightly dark drama with a little bit of comedy in it. It's basically about this woman. She's married to this guy. She gets pregnant by that guy's best friend. Ma leaves him. And marries that guy. That guy dies. And she wants to go back to the husband. Uh, and it, it, it's, it is about how that sort of works out. Jealousy and love and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of neat. Anything special on that DVD, man? Not at all. Not a single thing, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, you want to see Lily, Lily Rose Depp, though. She's in the movie. She uh, looks right. just she looks just like her mom. It makes me feel old. When I lived in France, her mom, Vanessa Paradis, who later yeah. married uh, Johnny Depp, um, was, a, was a teen singing sensation. I still remember that damn song, Joe Le Taxi. <laughs> playing on the radio everywhere. Jada Taxi is like is nonstop. You're like, oh, Vanessa Paradis, she's such a cute girl. And now her freaking daughter is older. Makes me feel so old, I can't stand. But it looks just like she did. She's a spitting image of her mom. There's very little Johnny in that face. If you look really closely, you're like, yeah, a little bit. It's in that, the chin, but she has her mother's face. And oh, yeah. anyway, Johnny, Johnny should have stayed with Vanessa, uh, if you ask me. Boy, Tell I agree. People on fire, which is really, mm. really sort of funny uh, uh, comedy uh, that takes place. You have this Palestinian kid uh, from East Jerusalem. He works on this soap opera. Uh, the soap opera, which is hysterical, it's about a Palestinian spy who falls in love with an Israeli police officer. And Palestinians love uh, the soap opera and Israelis love the soap opera. And central to the soap opera is this checkpoint uh, that people are you have to go. And that checkpoint is the actual checkpoint that our uh, hero in this, in, in, in this film has to pass through literally every day. You know, it, it, given the circumstances in Israel and Palestine and the tensions and all of that together, that, that a film like this can be come out of all of that, a film so funny and so sharp and so insightful, because Palestinians, of course, love that show for a whole set of different reasons that, than Israelis, Israelis love that show. Yeah. <laughs> yet, they yeah. Love the, yet they all love the show. 
yeah. that are interpreted completely and totally incorrect. I think I, anything, I thought it was just an absolutely scareful old movie. Tell people on fire. Uh, and that's a and that is a Blu-ray from Cohen. And then we have another from, uh, in the contemporary classics line from Cohen Media, which is shooting the mafia. This is a, uh, a an Italian documentary made last year about a woman who basically spent her entire life. Um, she, basically, uh, being a photographer of the, of mob events, mob crime. I mean, that was like her whole, she documented the whole history of the mob in Sicily. Uh, and, uh, not to, not, it didn't make it an easy life for her. Um, yeah, it's a, it, this is, this is an interesting doc. I don't know that I enjoyed it very much, but it's certainly interesting. Yeah, it's, it's sort of, sort of right there. I did see, uh, Aga. Yeah, uh, this extraordinary film, and it's and it is in fact a film, uh, um, a, a feature film, though it feels like uh, a documentary. Um, so there's a character here. So it's you know it's a contemporary, contemporarily set film, and we have these characters, one of whose name is Nanook, which is sort of funny because this, this movie yep. reminded me of Nanook of the North. Totally. Uh, in, in in a particular sort of way. So here we are. This film it, it films it films in Russia on the steppes in Russia. You have this couple who've been living traditionally the way the, their ancestors have for years and years and years. They live in a yurt. It's all it's covered in snow. Uh, they have their goats. And slowly but surely, life around them is changing. They can see that the ice doesn't go out as far as it used to. They, they, they can see that it's much thinner than it used to be. And, and they're just sort of like watching all of this actually happen in almost real time. And that's what this movie is actually about. Uh, I, the things that used to have to, to take centuries uh, to evolve in the context of a, of a community now are forced to evolve in the context of a season. Yeah. In a season, we will not be the same as we were the previous season. That's what this movie is about, and it's absolutely fascinating to watch. It is a Bulgarian-German-French co-production in Yakut is the language. Um, yeah, fascinating. My goodness. Um, wish it were on Blu-ray. Mm. We've also got a trio of films here from uh, VCI, which represent the uh, classics of Mexican cinema line, oh, or yeah. the uh, Clásicos del Cine Mexicano, or Cine Mexicano. Uh, they restored all of these in 4K. And uh, I should have checked with Claudia to see if Claudia's mom shows up in any of these. Because our, our, <laughs> our, our colleague, Claudia Puig, who's president of the LA Film Critics and uh, a colleague of ours on Film Week, her mom was a, was a, was a star in, uh, in Mexican films from this period. So uh, I'm sure, I'm sure if, she, if she isn't in them, people she knew uh, wound up in these. Anyway, there are three films here in particular. Um, and, uh, it, it, it's, it's fascinating because you forget what a rich film industry Mexico had yeah. all along. I mean, Mexico was very, very early into making a, a lot of narrative films. These are this like from 1945. Um, this one, uh, La Baraca, uh, is, is, is quite an impressive film. I mean, it really, it's, it's beautifully shot and it's a, it, you know, it's a, it's considered one of the great Mexican films of all time. And uh, it, it's a very interesting kind of socio-political look at, uh, at rural life in Mexico. And it's not exactly what you would have expected in the 1940s, which, you know, was a pretty politically volatile time to be shining a light on, on class divisions in Mexico and all that kind of stuff. But very, very interesting film. Uh, the other two are um, Una Familia de Tantas, a family like many others. 
which oh, is yeah. which is which is quite funny and uh, and and very entertaining. Um, this is uh, this is beautifully beautifully restored by the Mexican Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Really really pristine. This is also considered one of the all time great Mexican movies. And then the last one is uh, the skeleton of Mrs. Morales, El Esqueleto de la Señora Morales, yeah. uh, with Arturo de Cordova. And this is uh, a little bit cheesy. It's a you know it's a black comedy made in 1960 by uh, based on a 1927 uh, uh, kind of horror short story. Um, uh, it's it, it, it's okay. It's it's probably a little bit of a stretch to uh, for this to appeal to uh, people outside of you know really core Mexican cinema admirers. But the other two, Family Like Many Others and uh, La Baraca, both very 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 good. Outstanding. Uh, let's see what else we got here. You know, uh, real quickly, I'm gonna we're we're we've got about five minutes left before we call this quits. <clears throat> got another 4K here. Um, this is an animated film, and uh, well, well this will be a giveaway this week. I've got five giveaways if you want uh, Blu-ray copies of this. I'm reviewing the 4K right now, but we've got animated giveaway, uh, Blu-rays to give away for this animated film. This is um, from uh, Wellgo. It's called Neza. Choose your destiny. N e z h a. Uh, it is really, really. This is a very unusual movie because it's a story of a boy named Neza. Who uh, has a? He has, he's sort of a demigod. He's kind of born of mythical origins. Kind of a demon child. Kind of a demon child. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, and um, he he is he's feared because of what his destiny presumably is. You know, he's supposed to be like the destroyer of the world. And so the question is, do you get to choose your destiny if someone else has chosen it for you? I mean, does free will mean anything? Do you have to be that thing that you're forecast? It's a, it's really, really interesting animation. It's written and directed by Zhao Zi, only goes by the one name, Zhao Zi. Uh, it's a Chinese film uh, made by the Beijing Enlight Pictures Company in Beijing. I know China's not exactly popular in the world right now, but don't take it out on Chinese filmmakers. They need your help. And and your support, and it is beautiful in 4K, but it is also really impressive in Blu-ray. So uh, I don't think you have to have it on on 4K unless you you're really into 4K animation. Um, it's 3D animation, and it's you know computer computer animation, very imaginative, very very clever, uh, extremely well done, much better than than you might expect if you've seen you know Chinese animation from recent years. Anyway, we're giving away five of these, and. Um, you have plenty of time to watch them. So if you want to uh, be part of that, go ahead and email, email us at gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com and put N-E-Z-H-A in the subject line, name and address in the body of the uh, email. The uh, The Postal Service is not at its highest level of efficiency right now, so uh, it could take some time, but once we let you know, uh, you can go ahead and, you know, it'll, it, once we let you know that you've won, go ahead and do it. Make sure those emails get to us, please, by May 7th, May 7th. Um, and, uh, then we will pick, uh, five very lucky people to get Blu-ray copies of Neza Choose Your Destiny. Um, let's see, a couple of, you know, let, let me, let me, got a few other things here that we could probably make mention of. Uh, yeah. Criterion's. Oh, I see some of these down at the bottom of yeah. my list. <clears throat> Let's do these criterions. Uh, are you a fan of Miranda July, Tim? Well, um... Yeah, that answers my question. <laughs> 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 uh, 
so, can't say anything. Uh, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Miranda July is, of course, part of the whole, um, uh, what's, what you call it, the, 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 the puffy chair, the, the brothers. Yeah, the, 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 the Duplass the, boys and all that. Yeah, she, she's part of that whole movement. The Mumblecore, that's it, the yeah. Mumblecore movement. I, I, and I find those movies just really flabby and not very interesting, but I guess the whole point of them is that they're flabby. This was made in 2005, right about the beginning of that mumblecore thing, and it's, uh, you know, it's me, you, and everyone we know, and it, it's it's well-intentioned. It's got the criterion treatment, so it clearly means something to somebody. Um, Miranda July certainly has a following. I don't particularly like the film, uh, but what do I know? It's on Criterion. If you're a Criterion completist, you got to have it. It definitely, for me, the extras are more interesting. Uh, there's a conversation with July and Lena Dunham about, and don't worry if you hate Lena Dunham, it's okay. She's just basically carrying on the conversation about how July became, you know, a filmmaker and, and got into, you know, making movies. Um, and, uh, there's, you know, stuff from the Deauville, uh, film festival. There's some stuff from July's own, uh, archives, uh, footage from the 2003 Sundance lab where she workshopped this film and uh, then there's, you know, short films that she made and, and a bunch of other stuff. So it's kind of a celebration of Miranda July. Um, then there is The Cremator, C-R-E-M-A-T-O-R, uh, by Juraj Herds from 1969. This is a Czech New Wave film. Juraj Herds. I'm sure I didn't pronounce that correctly. I love Czech New Wave films. I find this really, really compelling. Uh, this is very, very Kafka-esque. This is oh, it's, set, it's set in Prague in the 30s, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it's, yes, it is. Absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, uh, it is. To take a look at. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really good. I mean, it's it is it's it's everything those Czech New Wave films are, which is it makes you know really potent commentary on uh, on totalitarianism and uh, all of those sort of Kafka-esque. Um, it, it uses Nazism as sort of a uh, an analogy for communism. So. The, obviously, the censors in 1969 didn't quite figure that out, and uh, or at least they did at a certain point, and then they banned it. But it is restored here in 4K. It is gorgeous. There's a short documentary from 2011 where Harris uh, visits the original filming locations and talks about making the film. Uh, it's it's really really impressive. And there's another documentary from 2017 about the composer. So it's uh, it's superb. <clears throat> Let's go out. Tim on a very deserving film because there's another Wes Anderson movie due later this year. We oh, don't know. Yes. We don't know when, but by golly, the Grand Budapest Hotel is the one Wes Anderson film that has not gotten the Blu-ray Criterion treatment. It finally has. Uh, all of Wes Anderson stuff eventually winds up on Criterion because he insists on it. And I love the Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, I, extraordinary film uh, for so many different reasons. For one, for one of the things, you know, the, the sort of lineage that it comes out of. Yeah, I love, I love that. But I, what I love most about it is the sort of um, um, technical uh, acuity that he applies to it. All of the different uh, aspect ratios that he uses across the arc of the film that are not arbitrary in any way, shape, or form. They're they're very, very spe specific uh, when he's using a particular aspect ratio. And then you just have these really, really wonderful. Uh, performances in this film uh it's just it's just really a great movie it is i i, I grand budapest hotel is uh the one that won him his uh screenwriting academy award uh for best original screenplay and it or was it adapted is this is this original or adapted i can't remember I, but 
I, 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 yeah, good, good you, question. You can, you can never, you keep yeah, going. But it is, it is such a fun film. He plays, you know, he, the thing about Wes Anderson is that sometimes he becomes a slave to his own stylistic inclinations. Uh, and sometimes they liberate him. And uh, if you look at something uh, like The Life Aquatic, I think is one where he kind of becomes a slave to his own instincts. But here... It's such a fun, uh, it's such a fun throwback to so many other uh, original movies. For you know, it's a throwback to movies from the 1930s and 40s. It's a throwback to a certain kind of European, Czech, or Hungarian filmmaking. Um, and Ray Fiennes is so funny, and everybody is just having so much fun. And you really, really do feel that Wes Anderson is just uh, he he could sit there and make this movie forever, and you could probably watch it forever. It's a it's an enormous amount of fun. Yeah, you know, go with a guy like Tony Revolori. Uh, you know, he's not a big star or anything yep. like that. I mean, it's kind of easy if you're using Owen Wilson. But Tony comes in and he and he, and he really does an excellent job in the film. Uh, original screenplay with uh, a story uh, conceived with Hugo Guinness, but yes, original ah, screenplay. There it is. There it is. Well, I mean, it's it's just a, an absolutely beautiful, beautiful Blu-ray. The making of the film, uh, which is a new documentary, the making of the Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, new interviews with cast and crew, video essays from uh, 2015 and 2020, um, and uh, an absolutely terrific commentary with Wes Anderson and Roman Coppola, along with Jeff Goldblum and Kent Jones. Yeah. And, you know, Roman Coppola, of course, is his frequent collaborator now, and uh, it's a wonderful conversation. It really is. There's also storyboard animatics, which uh, for nerds who like to see storyboards, we'll, we'll get a big kick out of. So there it is. That does it for us this week. Uh, we'll be back, you know, in probably over a week. Uh, this will go up here right at the beginning of May. And we're going to, you know, look for us to come back somewhere, I'm going to hope, around May 10th. They're talking now about reopening California slowly around May 16th so uh, we'll see uh, we'll see what that means for us but uh, Tim otherwise you're safe you're well all good over here sir all right with that we'll see everybody next week uh, or the week after <laughs>